Good morning, Vineyard Northwest. My name is Luke. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, if you brought them. I love that we just did intercession together as a church body. If you look back at the early church, they had four priorities that are stated in Acts 2. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. And so when we gather as one body, spending time in corporate prayer is really important in what we're supposed to do. So I get to wrap up the Worshiping the King series this morning. I'm really excited. I've loved seeing the growth that's happened over the past three weeks. Wilson kicked off the first message in this Worshiping the King series, and it was all, it was titled Worshiping in Spirit and Truth. It was all about laying the groundwork and theology in big picture for what worship is. And he came to the definition of worship, that worship is from a sincere heart, ascribing worth to God through action. He took us through a bunch of scriptures. He showed us what the Hebrew thought would be about worship and ascribing worth to God through action from a sincere heart. And then he went into six of his practical tips for worship, thankfulness, surrender, devotion, worshiping with passion and expression, even when you don't feel like it. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Don't uh, overanalyze other people while you're worshiping, but focus on God. Don't be motivated by experience. Don't worship the experience of worship. Just worship God. And then do regular things unto God as an act of worship. So then Van took over the next week. His message was titled, Worshiping in Response to Revelation. And that was his big idea, that during worship, God reveals things. And worship is actually responding to what he's revealing. Worship is not a one-way interaction. It's a two-way interaction, us worshiping, God revealing stuff, us seeing what he revealed, hearing what he revealed, and responding to it. Van also touched a little bit on what it looks like to sing with one voice as a church body and talked about how we're supposed to sing with one unified voice. People aren't supposed to necessarily stand out. Voices are supposed to be blended and we sing with one voice. And then last week I talked about worshiping with passion and purity of heart. We went through what passionate worship looks like. We looked at all the different expressions that we find, commands to worship God, raising our hands to worship God, clapping to worship God, shouting, singing, dancing, kneeling. We looked at all of those and how worshiping just in your mind, just thinking worship during worship is not actually biblical worship. Biblical worship involves these actions. You can't divorce the two. Yeah, Worshiping without a sincere heart isn't really worship, but worshiping with only a sincere heart and no action also is not biblical worship. Biblical worship is two-sided. So that's the recap of the series. And what I'm gonna, the thought I'm going to talk about to conclude all of this is now that we've been equipped to worship and to grow as a worshiper, as an individual, what does it look like for us to worship as one body together? 
what changes when I go from my bedroom worshiping to when I'm gathering with the church to worship? Does anything change? Now, some would say that when you worship with the church, there should be a strict liturgy as to how you worship. You only sing these songs. You only sing in this order. You do this and then that. And God forbid anyone raise their hands or clap or shout or dance. You are to put your hands in your pocket or hold your hymnal and sing as quietly as you can until it's over. And that is what 2,000 years of emotionally stunted male-dominated leadership in the church has done. (laughs) That was totally a joke. Don't cheer for that. That was totally totally tongue-in-cheek. But then you have another attitude, which is anything goes in worship. However you want to worship, you worship that way. If you like to worship with fireworks, light them off in the sanctuary. (laughs) If you like to crowd surf without people knowing, run from your chairs, leap and dive on top of them. Anything, if you want to, you know, strip down naked in worship, it's biblical. (laughs) If you don't believe me, I'll show you the passage later. You want to strip down naked? So what is it? Is it, is it a strict liturgy? Is it literally anything goes when we're together? What is, what's the proper way to worship? And that's what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. In those three chapters, which are the chapters we're going to look at, Paul gives guidelines and principles for how believers should engage in corporate spiritual activity when they gather together. He mentions spiritual gifts in those chapters. He mentions singing. He mentions sharing revelations and other topics. So that's the focus for the morning. With that said, let's take a look at some of the problems that existed in the church of Corinth. The book of 1 Corinthians was written to the Corinthians, who were the people of the church of Corinth. And Paul, in verses 12 through 14, is addressing many issues that the Corinthian church had with how worship was happening in their corporate gathering. When I say corporate gathering, I mean the gathering of all of the church in one room, like we are gathered now. So what were the problems? First, They had confusion about the Trinity and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and how those worked. They thought that, for example, the Father was one God and he did healing and prophecy and then the Holy Spirit was another God and he did miracles and faith and then Jesus was another God and he did so on and so forth. And so Paul is bringing clarity to that error. Also, they had a lack of honor and love for each other during their corporate gatherings. We're gonna read more about that. They had a lack of edification for the church body during their corporate gatherings. We're going to talk a lot about edification, but the church was getting together and they were doing spiritual gifts and worshiping and teaching, but there wasn't the edification or the building up that was happening that needed to be happening. There was a lack of edification for outsiders and ungifted people during their corporate gatherings and chaos and disorder in how the corporate gatherings were being conducted was also a problem. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and he's addressing these issues. And I'm not going to hit on all of those issues. I don't have time. But 
I want to hit on the big ones, and especially the ones that have to do with worship. So Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians 12 addressing that, er- that polytheistic error of viewing the Trinity as three different gods. And then in verses four through six, he gives this amazing thesis statement that explains what he's gonna talk about for the rest of chapter 12. And then in verse seven, he says this, and this is where we're gonna start. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Everyone say common good for the common good. And this leads into my first point, and this is actually the overarching point for all of my points, that a central priority in corporate worship should be edification. Another way to say edification is the common good. Now, I shared about this, I shared this metaphor last week. I'm gonna share it again Corporate gatherings of worship should not look like going to Planet Fitness. So I have a Planet Fitness membership and I work out there a few times a week. When I'm going there, before I even walk in the door, my headphones are in, I've got music on, I pull out my key card, I walk up to the scanner, I check in, I don't even make eye contact with the person who is checking people in. I head to the locker room and man, I'm really tunnel vision in the locker room because there's some wild stuff happening in the <laughs> locker room at Planet Fitness. Get dressed and I, and what's happening? I am completely disengaged from everyone else around me. I am just going to Planet Fitness to have my own workout. I, don't, I could care less how the workouts of anyone else in the gym goes. I'm there to have my own workout. I have my workout and I leave. And as I teach this, I'm convicted that I need to be more open to interacting with people in the gym. (laughs) I do. But that's, honestly, that's my mindset. And can any of you relate? You don't go to the gym to, well, some of you extroverts probably do, go to the gym to strike up a conversation and make some new friends. Maybe you do, but I don't. And a lot of people don't. And, and the way this relates is that corporate worship is not supposed to just be all of us having our own individual experience with God in the same room. It's not supposed to be like the gym where we're all doing our own workout in the same room, but we're completely disconnected and disengaged from each other. It should more so be like my brother and sister-in-law's gym. They go to a CrossFit gym in Springfield and According to them, they walk in and they know everyone. They say hi to everyone. If there is anyone there they don't know, they take a second to meet that person. I guess they encourage each other while they're working out. They'll have multiple people encourage them while they're working out. And they even will help each other learn how to do stuff they didn't know how to do before. And it's this very communal thing where everyone is there to work out for themselves, yes, but they also are equally invested in the workout of those around them. That's what corporate worship is supposed to look like for a church body. We're supposed to not just be individualistic in our thinking about worship. What am I gonna get out of this? What's my worship gonna be like? But we're supposed to be considering the common good or the edification for the entire group that we're worshiping with. I've used that word edification several times. Now, let me give you a definition. This is from Blue Letter Bible. 
Great Bible study resource if you need one. Edification is to build up and promote growth in wisdom, affection for God, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. I'm supposed to not just care about my own sense of being built up during a worship service. I'm supposed to care about you being built up. up. Not just my own growth, but your growth. Not just my own affection for God, but your affection for God. I'm supposed to seek your edification as much as I seek my own edification as we worship. Now, edification... The effect that it has on me when I am in an edifying worship environment is that I worship God with more passion, with more intentionality, and with more purity of heart. I look over and I see you worshiping God with passion, and it stirs and it spurs on that passion in me to worship Him. I see you bowing in reverence before God, and it spurs me on to. Uh, revere God in that moment. It also increases my ability to connect with God in a personal, intimate way. An edifying worship, at, worship atmosphere helps me connect with God. It produces the fruits of the Spirit in us. Here's one that's going to sound a little counterintuitive. People who worship different from us maybe even with quirks that slightly annoy us, edify us. This is the beauty of community, that we all come together as one big, old, happy, dysfunctional family, all with our own weaknesses and our quirks and our flaws, and we actually learn patience and grace and mercy from each other by being around people that annoy us. If you don't annoy me, I'm not going to grow in patience. How can I? If the person next to you doesn't annoy you, you're not going to learn what it looks like to have mercy and grace for someone. Tell the person next to you, you're supposed to annoy me. (laughs) You're supposed to annoy me. Why? Here's why. You guys liked that one, didn't you? (laughs) God will use the little annoying quirks of the person next to you to root out judgmentalism and offense in your heart. God will use the little thing that person does with how they worship that annoys you to root out the own offense in your own judgmentalism in your heart. And it's important. It's, it's just important. And one last thing on that. It's a problem if the only way that I can worship is if all of you are worshiping the way I want you to. It's a problem. It's a problem if the only way that I can worship is if you are worshiping exactly I think you should. You know what, really? I'm worshiping me. As long as you worship like me, I can worship. It's not about me. It's about we. It's about us. It's about edification for the entire church body. Last thing on this, and I'm going to step on some of your toes, and I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be petty. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. 
but I think this is a good time to address this. It's edifying when the room is ready to go when service starts. <laughs> Let me explain. There are plenty of reasons, great reasons, to be running late to church. My world right now is dominated by young kids. All my friends have young kids. I have a one-year-old and a newborn baby on the way this month, so really any day. And I know there are valid, and you don't have to have kids to have a valid reason to be running late to church. It's fine to be running late to church, but if, but, so that's, let me say that. Let me say another thing. When service starts, when worship starts, and the room is halfway full, and then for the first 10 minutes of service, people are coming in to find their seat, that is maybe not crazy disruptive, but it's to a degree disruptive to the people that got here on time that want to worship. Because people are coming in, finding seats, moving past you, etc. And again, if you're running late, there's so many good reasons to be running late. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if you get here on time and you're cracking a joke with your friend out in the atrium, sipping a cup of coffee, like finish the joke up and come in before service starts. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're here on time, try, be in your seat on time. I know that sounds petty. It sounds harsh, but just zooming out, our top priority should be the edification of the church body. It shouldn't be about what is my church experience going to be like today. It should be about what is our church experience going to be like today. And when I really have that value that I care just as much about your experience as I care about mine, then I do things like do everything I can to be on time, do everything I can to seek your edification during the service. Can't read you guys super well right now. Hopefully that wasn't too harsh. <clears throat> but if you have any thoughts on that, just email me at wilson at vcnw.org. <laughs> that joke always works. Next point. In corporate worship, there are different roles to play. So there's different roles to play in corporate worship. This comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 17. Let's just read verse 14. Verse 14 says, for the body is not one part, but many. And Paul goes on to talk about the different body parts and the different roles they play. So different roles in a worship service would be, first off, you have the senior leaders in the worship pastor. They kind of set the culture for the worship for the church in general, and they pastor corporate worship expression. You have the service director whose job is to run the day-to-day -day practical elements of the service and make sure that it's in line with the vision for the church. You have the worship leaders, and the worship leaders on a Sunday morning have been given authority to lead all of us in worship. They actually have authority, and there's a sense in which we should be submitting to their authority as they lead us. You have musicians, and musicians aren't just background music for the singers. Skillful musicianship enhances our ability to worship and can even bring the presence of God in a greater way. There's this great story in 2 Kings 3 where the prophet Elisha is being asked to prophesy and so he first recruits a musician and the musician starts to play and as the musician plays, the power of God comes on him and he prophesies. 
the music, uh, instruments, even without any singing, can release the presence of God. It's an important role. And then there's worshipers. You're, if you're a worshiper in a corporate worship service, you have a role. Your role is to worship, and it's to honor God and seek the edification and honor of the people that are in the room with you. And with these roles in mind, in the ideal corporate worship gathering, each person would both function in and be fully content in the role that God has them in. So whatever your role is, let's say you're a wor- just a worshiper, not just a worshiper, you get to be a worshiper. If you're a worshiper and that's your role in a corporate worship gathering, you should both function in that role and be fully content in that role. Meaning, you shouldn't wish you were the one who was leading worship. One of our house groups years ago, we were, le- we were in a time of corporate worship, and one of the girls that was coming to, the young adult girls that was coming to the house group, started just worshiping passionately to something that was on her heart during a given moment, and the whole room started singing what she was singing. And it was this beautiful moment where completely spontaneously, the Holy Spirit just led us into singing something we weren't going to sing before. And that was great. But then she started doing that every time we had worship. Whenever there was a quiet moment, she would start singing what she wanted to sing and the room would start to follow her. And pretty soon you had this awkward, tense thing happening where the worship leaders were like, where she was like competing with the worship leaders as to who was going to lead the group in singing what. And what was happening there? It wasn't anything egregious. She wasn't doing it with a bad heart at all. But I don't think she understood what her role was in that moment. It's the worship leader's role to lead us. I mean, imagine if everyone got to bring a drum set. Would that be an edifying worship experience? No, right? We have a drummer. It's their job to play drums. We don't need 25 drummers. That would be chaos. In the same way, having different roles, it's not a controlling thing. And again, like when it happened spontaneously that first time, I really believe it was God. But when it happened over and over and over and over again, what it, what it was, and, she, and what she realized as we talked to her about it and passed her through it was, oh, I really actually feel called to be a worship leader. And so I'm like trying to lead whenever I can. But really what I should do is join the worship team and lead in the moments that I've been given authority to lead. So we need to know our role. And this, this goes for musicians too. It's not your job to be sitting in, in your seat and critiquing the music that's happening. I know it. sometimes the drums get off Sometimes the bass guitar is doing weird stuff. Sometimes the keys are hitting wrong notes. And especially if you're a musician, it's, you automatically are going to hear that stuff. Your brain just is sensitive to it. But what, what you do is you say, okay, they messed up. That's fine. I'm going to keep worshiping. It's not my job to, it's not my role in that particular moment to care deeply about what the musicians are doing or not doing. Next point, corporate worship should look like a group of believers honoring God and honoring each other. So I'm not going to read all of 1 Corinthians 12, 22 through 27, but can you throw it up there? 
Basically, in this passage, Paul is talking about honoring each other and how there's different parts of the body and even the, the ones that seem to be less significant, they are worthy of honor too, and they should actually be worthy of more honor. And, and the ultimate point he's getting at here is that when we gather together, whether we're flowing in spiritual gifts or worshiping, whatever we're doing, we should be focused not just on honoring God, but also on honoring each other. Five or six years ago in a worship service, there was this woman worshiping in front of me. And while I'm worshiping, all of a sudden she backs up into me because you know, she was just very moving a lot and dancing during worship, which is awesome. And we both laugh and she's like, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh no, don't worry about it. It's totally fine. We had a little Christian off, you know, who can be kinder, who can be more humble. <laughs> it's totally okay. It's totally okay. Do it again, actually. <laughs> and it was fine. Then next thing you know, a minute later, here she comes backing up right towards me again. So at this point, I kind of get out of the way and she goes right into the spot I was and isn't even aware so, okay, so I go back in, I'm worshiping again, and here she comes again, and so I have to move again. And then finally, my flesh took over the fourth time. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not moving. She can run right into me. And she backs up and boom, collides with me again. And she's again like, oh, I'm so sorry. And this time I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. And, so, and I was so annoyed and so frustrated and I realized it, so I actually left the worship service and went and got my heart, my heart right. Like, she probably was unaware. She certainly wasn't doing it on purpose. She was just passionately worshiping God. It's okay. But whether we're aware of it or not, there are ways that we can interrupt the worship of the people around us and thereby not honor them or even dishonor them during a worship experience. And I think this example helps show the difference between the person with the little annoying quirk that you just need to get over and worship through and the person who really is interrupting worship for another believer. There's a difference between someone just getting your attention and someone interrupting you. Like the Bible we talked about last week talks about shouting. You're supposed to shout during worship. That is a biblical way of worshiping. But if I shout a hundred times as loud as I can next to you, you're not gonna be able to worship. It's going to interrupt your worship. So it's hard to give super clear and fast rules about this. You really can't really Talking about specific rules isn't helpful. It's more about talking about tensions. There's the tension of, yes, don't quench the spirit. Worship passionately. Honor God with your whole being. And, not or, but and honor those around you. Care about their worship experience as much as you care about your own. Don't interrupt what God is doing in them. It's a tension, but it's just like the tension of Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, just like the tension of the kingdom being already and the kingdom being not yet. It's the tension of the three-in-one God. He's three and one. It's two truths that seem like they're mutually exclusive, but because the Bible tells us they're not, we believe they're not, even though they might seem like a paradox. 
And this concept of honor and edification in worship is one of those. This flows great into this point. Paul goes from 1 Corinthians 12 into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And you maybe never knew this. You maybe thought 1 Corinthians 13 was about weddings and marriage because it's quoted so often in wedding ceremonies. But 1 Corinthians 13 is about corporate spiritual activity, spiritual gifts, worship, etc. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of mankind and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. No matter what I'm singing, if I don't have love, I'm an interruption. I'm a distraction. I'm not a pleasant sound in the room. Then 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act disgracefully, it does not seek its own benefit, it's not selfish, it's not only focused on my own worship experience, not only focused on, what I, on my freedom and what I get to do, it's focused on the whole room. It doesn't seek its own benefit, it is not provoked, and then at the same time, it's not easily offendable, it's not like how dare you worship that way? You should worship this way. I can't worship anymore. It's not, it's not easily offendable. It's not judgmental. It does not keep an account of a wrong suffering. And then we get into 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul goes even deeper into this idea of edification. Verses 2 through 5 Paul's talking about t- speaking in tongues and prophesying. And listen to what he says. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Get this. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but rather or but even more so that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. So his point here is prophecy is more edifying than tongues because it is able to be understood by the room. And then he makes this crazy statement. He says, the one who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So what does that mean? That means it's possible to edify yourself while not edifying the church. And that's a bizarre concept because how could it be that God, what, how I am worshiping in a given moment is building up my relationship with God and simultaneously tearing down the connection with God that you may be trying to have in that moment. How can it be, how, why would God still allow me to be built up if I'm not building all of you up? Wouldn't God just quench my experience because I'm in the wrong until I start worshiping the way I should be? And last time I checked, 
we served a God of unbelievable mercy and grace who, even if we're doing it wrong, if our heart is still in some way wanting to honor him and connect with him, even if we're not doing it right, he is still going to show up and edify us. But that is not an excuse for immaturity. And it's not an excuse for worshiping in such a way that doesn't bring edification to the room. And then Paul goes later on into this chapter and he makes this really weighty statement. It's not going to be up there, so just listen to it. Therefore, if the whole church gathers together and all the people speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are insane? <laughs> if, people, if outsiders or people that aren't following Jesus show up and you're all speaking in tongues, aren't they going to say you're crazy and leave and experience no edification themselves? And so Paul goes on to say, so don't do that. Don't speak in tongues unless you are interpreting. And now, as I say that, there is so much more to unpack about that because there's actually different forms of tongues. There's a difference between speaking in tongues to release an interpretation and just speaking in the spirit or singing in the spirit, as Paul says. Sorry, we don't have time to go into that. But um, when unbelievers or outsiders enter... We need to be aware of how we are coming across to them. And what do we need to be aware of? We need to be aware of the intelligibility of, that's a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 14, the intelligibility of what's happening. In some churches, the way they apply this is they say, anything that would make a non-Christian feel uncomfortable or weird is forbidden. And so if, and you can take that to an extreme, if, if, an un, if a non-Christian will come in and see people raising their hands, then we need to really encourage our people not to raise their hands. And it's like, okay, but the Bible says raise your hands when you worship. So what, how do we apply this? And the key to applying this truth to the church today in 2022 is what Paul says about tongues. He doesn't forbid tongues. He just says they need to be interpreted. What does that mean for us? That weird stuff can happen in our church gatherings in the presence of non-Christians and in the presence of people that aren't used to it, but it needs to be easily explainable. So if someone's raising their hands and you bring your non-Christian friend, they're like, hey, why are they raising their hands? You can easily just say, well, what were you doing five weeks ago when the Bengals made it to the Super Bowl? Yeah, right? Same kind of thing. Boom. People ask, why are people, why are they dancing? Dancing is an expression of worship. Why are people shouting? Shouting is an expression of passion and worship. So, so what is happening, it's fine if it doesn't make sense to a non-believer or someone who's not used to this environment, but it just needs to be easily explainable. Now, sometimes God does stuff that is not easily explainable. I don't know, some of you in the room maybe have had an experience where God just, his presence came on you and you were undone before him and 
I've seen it before where this looks like someone's like even having a seizure or, some, or falling down or rolling around on the ground, like something crazy, right? So what do we do if someone is, starts to have that kind of an experience, let's say up here in the front of the room? Do we shut it down? Do we, do we like, what's, what, how do we, because that's not something that's going to be easily explainable to an outsider. Like, yeah, God sometimes makes us have seizures. And they're like, and this is a cult. I'm leaving. <laughs> so what do we do in those scenarios? Well, in verse 32, we actually have verse 26 through 33. Um, let's just read the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. What is then the outcome then, brothers and sisters, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are to be done for edification. Again, edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it must be by two or th- at the most three, and each one in turn, and one is to interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he is to keep silent in church. Stop there. If you have a word from God, but there's no one, or a tongue from God, but there's no one there to interpret, you are to keep silent. So what does that tell us? That tells us that sometimes God will do something in us that we are supposed to not express through us, that we're supposed to keep as an internal kind of an experience. And how do we do that? Well, he goes on to say, uh, just verse 32 For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And this is the key phrase. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. What does that mean? That means even if God gives you a prophetic word, you can still control whether or not you share that prophetic word. And this principle is true for spiritual activity in general. The spirit of a worshiper is subject to the worshiper. You can control how you worship. If you feel like light and fireworks off and that's what you feel God doing in you, by all means, after church, go home, light fireworks off in your backyard, in your backyard. But don't light fireworks off here in the sanctuary. And don't tell me that, well, I just have to. God is just forcing me. No, the spirit of the worshiper is subject to the worshiper. And, and even if God's presence starts to come upon you and you start to feel like you're going out of control, the spirit of the one experiencing God is subject to the one experiencing God. You can channel that, what God is doing on you in a different way than having a seizure in the front of the room on the ground. Most of the time. I will add the caveat. I do think like, maybe three or five or 10, I don't know, times in our lives, we will have encounters with God where we are just completely out of control and he's doing something in us. If that's happening, that's a different thing. But the majority of the time when God's presence comes on us in such a way, we can, we can, we can channel that a different way than maybe what would feel natural to come out of us. And the same is true for worship. We may want to worship in a really, you know, extravagant or a really um, demonstrative kind of a way. We may want to do cartwheels across the, the, the sanctuary, right? But 
we can say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to quench the spirit either. I'm just going to channel that inspiration that's coming on me in a different way. And this, this is important to understand because my next point, individual expression of passion is not the highest value in corporate worship. It's important. And, I, and the last thing that I want is for us to worship with any less passion than we have been as a church body. I love the enthusiasm. And Dara, you can, you can start to come out. I love the enthusiasm. I love the passion. I love the zeal for the Lord that we step into every Sunday morning. And the last thing I would want to do is to lose any of that. But at the same time, we don't have to view a step of maturity as something that is mutually exclusive from expression of passion. We can mature as a church body in how we worship together and be just as passionate, if not more passionate and more zealous than we were before. And I know this, this part of the message kind of feels challenging and corrective in a sense. And, and you know, I, I'd, I don't, I'd rather give a just inspiring, feel-good kind of a message, to be honest. Like, I, it's not fun to come up and give the more corrective ones, but we're trying just to be faithful to what the Word says and to share it even when it's hard sometimes and even when it may challenge the mindset that we want to have at our particular church even. And again, there's a tension here. It's, there's, there is quenching the spirit. We definitely don't want to do that. We don't want to restrict your freedom just because your freedom makes us feel insecure and out of control. The last thing that we want to do is that. But at the same time, there's also the truth that we read here, that the spirit of the worshiper is subject to the worshiper, that God cares about how we how we worship in front of people that aren't used to it. He cares, he wants us to have a heart of, of compassion and edification for the other people in the room. He doesn't want us to have this individualistic mindset where all we're concerned about is our own freedom and how free we get to be when we worship. And he wants us to worship with passionate freedom. It's not an either or. You see, we human beings, we love it when things are either or. We love it when it's this or that. It's not. It's a tension. It's a both and. And it's uncomfortable sometimes to live in that tension. But in the tension, is the, it's the most powerful place to live. When you draw a bow back, it is the tension of the bow that releases power. And it's living in these biblical tensions when it comes to worship and all kinds of other topics that we experience the power of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Ben, you can come on out. Jesus, we welcome your presence in this place. Father, we want to be a church that worships with unbelievable zeal, passion, and excitement. And at the same time, we want to be a church that worships in maturity and worships in wisdom and doesn't worship selfishly isn't just concerned about our own, what we get to do, but is concerned about the edification of the whole room. 
Come, Holy Spirit. Would you stir our hearts to worship you now? You guys can start coming. Would you stir our hearts to worship you? Would we have a deeper appreciation for our brothers and sisters in this next moment of worship than we've ever had before? Would you give us the heart of love that you desire for us to have for each other? Jesus' name.